all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, today we're going to be talking about the body keeps the score, um, brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, it is kind of well known as the Bible of <laughs> like trauma recovery, basically. Uh, but it is a five-part book. Um, it is hefty as fuck. So I was so apprehensive to read this book. I have started it and then stopped it multiple times because I've heard from so many people like, oh my gosh, it's so intense. And in my mind, I assumed that that meant it was going to be intense in trauma and there was going to be triggering material within the book that was going to be a lot for me. Um, Apparently what it actually meant is the book is basically a textbook. It is a textbook in a very small format. Um, It is wildly academic There are brain scans in the book, like MRIs, like there is a lot going on and it is very academic in nature and it is very dense. So I already had planned on breaking the book down into essentially three sections. So I was going to tackle part uh, one and two because the book has five parts. So um, you're going to hear some some page flipping, by the way, throughout this episode, because I have the book next to me and we're going to be referencing it. But I was going to do part one and two, part three and four, and then part five as a three episode arc of breaking down this book. I'm really glad that I did it that way because holy shit, this book is there's so much material. Um, But in this episode, um. We're going to cover parts one through two, and that is pages one to 106. And this book kind of hops from topic to topic. Uh, that's the one thing that actually I don't like about it that is, is making it hard for me to read is because there's the organization of it doesn't mesh well with the way my brain works. So I basically took notes and um, organized it into different sections that made sense to me. Um, but yeah, so... My version was published in 2014. I wanted to say that as well. Um, Once again, this is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And then I also wanted to give a trigger warning. Um, Trauma, sexual abuse, childhood abuse, self-harm, neglect, relational abuse, war trauma, violence, and death. Um, The reason why I'm including that is because those are the things that are talked about within the book. And then that also might kind of cross over into this conversation. Um... The book also has no trigger warnings. So if you choose to read the book, be careful. Um, It does not warn the reader when things like rape or violence will be described. Um, In parts one through two, so the the pages that I have read thus far, there are also multiple stories that involve animal abuse. Um, I will not be discussing those in the podcast, but if you do choose to read the book, be careful. Um... Cause that was like really off putting to me and I I'm very sensitive to animal violence and it really upset me. Um, and then as a disclaimer, I did not write this book, nor am I claiming that the ideas are mine. I'm going to be relating my own experiences to what I learned in the book. Um, but the book was written by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and it is entirely his material. Um, I'm just breaking it down because of the sheer density of the material. I feel like I'm in a space where I have the emotional and mental capacity to read this And I didn't have that capacity earlier, um, but I I wish I had the information earlier. I just didn't have the space to consume it yet. 
So I'm hoping that my breaking down of the material will help others gain the knowledge without having to expel as much energy. Um, I'll also be quoting Vanderkolk, but we'll make it clear. Like I'll tell you his page numbers and stuff when I do so. And then I'll also be linking the link to purchase the book in the bio. And I highly suggest that you do because as much as I will be reviewing the highlights, there is so much in this book that I'm not going to cover. Um, and it's so beneficial for trauma survivors. And it really is like the the Bible for trauma recovery. Um, so many therapists will say that, and it's very true. Um, I also had such a hesitancy to read it. I just assumed it would be really traumatic. Um, so I've had this like reading block where I had it on my to-do list to read it. And so we just really powered down. I intentionally announced it on the podcast that I was going to be reviewing it because I, or um, more breaking it down, not really a review. Um, but I intentionally mentioned it on the podcast because I was like, hold me accountable. I need to read this fucking book. Um, so we're going to dive in. Um, it's going to be a lot, guys. Uh, it's only 100 pages, but holy shit, there's so much in there. And the stuff that I'm mentioning is literally like, he could have like the stuff that I'm going to mention would fit in like five or 10 pages. Like he, <laughs> there's so much material. Um, this is just the stuff that I felt was beneficial to me that might be beneficial to other people. So, uh, for those of you who like outlines, I'm going to give you a quick outline of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about physiological change due to trauma. We're going to talk about the way that trauma feels like it is an ongoing event We're going to talk about reliving trauma. We're going to talk about remembering trauma. We're going to talk about shame. We're going to talk about relationships after and during trauma. We're going to talk about the impact on self, so the impact on you and your uh, sense of self. We're going to talk about trauma reactions and trauma treatments. I have not read the rest of this book yet, and I know for a fact that he goes deeper into treatments later. So... Um, there's a good chance that some of these topics we will recover in different lights with more information in parts one and, or in parts two and three, um, as in like part two and three episode two and three of this like series. Um, but yeah, so let's just fucking get into it. Cause guys, I have five pages of notes (laughs) from this fucking outline. Um, so a lot of this book centers on physiological change due to trauma Um, He talks about how trauma drastically alters your brain chemistry and um, shuts down certain centers of your brain and um, emphasizes other centers of your brain. Um, He talks about how it can create certain physiological um, disorders and deficits, um, which to me has always been so validating. I think that in culture, trauma is shoved under the rug and treated as if it is not a real disorder. There has been so much conversation and just bullshit around trauma and even just mental health in general of society kind of I don't know, kind of like shoving it off and just being like, "Oh, just tough it up" or like, "Oh, it's all in your head." Or you guys are pussies. Like there's just a lot of like downplaying the reality of trauma and mental health and mental health disorders and acting like it is something that people just make up for attention or people create these problems in their head. And I think that the way that Vanderkolk 
goes so fucking deep into, no, no, I'm a doctor and I'm literally going to give you brain scans of how this impacts your brain and changes your brain is very validating because it gives um, science and evidence and tangible evidence to something that is often very um, intangible and not something that can be grasped. A lot of the symptoms of trauma um, that we initially associate with trauma, because we now know that, you know, gut problems and eczema and asthma can all be symptoms of trauma, but your doctor's not going to look at your asthma and go, do you have trauma? Because that's not how society's working. Society doesn't look at, at trauma as a logistic or as a, um, as a, like a real reason for things to be wrong. It's still kind of this like pseudoscience that a lot, a lot of people view it as like not a real disorder. And I just have always found it very helpful throughout my trauma journey and my healing journey that just when people give science to it and they give evidence and facts, because that's how my brain works. Like that's how I understand things as well. So when I can give, when someone gives me a real tangible reason why something is happening to me, I'm like, okay, cool. I can lean into that and feel validated in my emotions because I know that there is science and like legit science behind why my brain is doing X, Y, Z. So when I, um, I'm going to do this throughout the episode, but I'm going to relate back to my trauma because that's just the easiest way for me to do this. Um, when I initially went through the start of my trauma recovery journey, which I'll give you guys just a really quick recap. Um, I had trauma in my childhood. Um, but the main source of my trauma, I had a really big trauma when I was seven uh, it basically shut me down and I entered a state of dissoci- dissociation um, and essentially lived in a dissociative state from age 7 to 18. Uh, my emotions and my feeling center was not like entirely shut down, but it was pretty damn restricted. And it was to the point where my entire family knew that I was dissociating. Um, we didn't know that word, but it would, it, my whole family called my, um, like my, where I would put my emotions, my cave, because when something emotional would happen, I would shut down and like something would shift in my eyes and in my tone of voice, my body language and my, my parents and my sister and stuff would be like, you know, you're, you're going to have to take all that stuff out of your cave someday because I just stuffed everything emotionally into this cave. And then I, you know, pushed the cave really far away and acted like it didn't exist. And when I was 15, I was sexually assaulted for the first time. Uh, I did not realize it was sexual assault. I hadn't been educated on consent. I wasn't aware of what had happened, and I pushed it into my cave. I had some emotional reactions to it. I felt like something was wrong. I didn't address it. I just pushed it away. When I was 18, um, I went to college, and someone helped me realize that I was sexually assaulted. And basically, I cracked open that cave, and that cave door went flying open and everything that I hadn't processed just came flooding out. And it was a very overwhelming release of emotion that I had no tools to handle or process or, um, approach in a way that was healthy or productive. 
And so I kind of just shut down. Um, my entire personality changed. Um, everything that made me, me changed. And I had a very significant like identity crisis. Um, then the person that helped me realize that I was assaulted, um, ended up, I ended up dating him, got into a very abusive relationship with him for two or three months. Um, he raped me over and over in different contexts throughout a relationship. It all culminated to, uh, one sexual assault in which he raped me while I was unconscious. And, um, we ended up breaking up. And about three months after that, I remembered that it had happened. Because once again, I my default was to put things into a cave. And I then had to, I didn't have to, but I kind of felt like I had to. I then reported the assault and had to go through an investigation, which was even more traumatizing than the assault itself. And then later entered into another abusive relationship where I was verbally and emotionally abused. <laughs> so <laughs> we've been through the fucking ringer, y'all. Um but in the midst of that sexual assault, the second one, when I started to um, seek out, uh, I don't know, I started the investigation, I got really fucked up, basically. Like, I couldn't, I was like a shell of a human. I literally uh, don't remember most of that time period. I I know that I wasn't social. I wasn't eating. I wasn't showering. I was sleeping all of the time. I cried all the time. Everything set me off. I couldn't handle anything. And that lasted for like a good two and a half years. Um, in that time period, I found a support group for sexual assault survivors and I joined that support group. And in that support group, my support group leader, who is now my therapist, we love her very much, um, basically centered on the idea, like she gave us a lot of very tangible resources that said, like, this is the science of how your brain is working, which was super helpful for me because it, it gave logical reason behind why I was acting the way that I was acting and that why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And it also gave something that was tangible, which I grew up in a Christian environment where nothing was tangible and everything was faith-based. And I had such a hard time with that. I, I'm an I'm an evidence person. I need evidence for things and I need something tangible. And so being able to have like concrete evidence, um, like fucking brain scans of like how my brain was changing, not my personal brain, but just like, you know, examples, it was very helpful for me in validating that my trauma was legit and real and I really did have PTSD. And I didn't know that I had PTSD until I explained my symptoms to my sociology professor. And he is a was a war veteran and explained his symptoms of his PTSD from war. And our symptoms were drastically similar. And he, as a war vet, said, you have PTSD. Like, this is what you have. And then gave me the first like coping mechanisms I'd ever been given as to how to process that. Um, so... Reading this in this book was super interesting to me and very helpful because it was like, okay, cool. Like, here's just more concrete evidence that what I've been holding on to is helpful. And then I think for people who have never seen the like evidence of physiological changes due to trauma, it's it's very helpful. So I'm just gonna give a few examples of what um, Vanderkolk talks about. So for one, he talks about revisiting trauma, right? Because 
when they're doing brain scans of people, they're not creating traumas and then watching how people's brain reacts the first time they intake the trauma. They're they're ha- they're stimu- like simulating situations in which the person would have a flashback or they'd revisit the trauma, they'd relive the trauma, they would, you know, feel triggered, whatever. Um and so while doing those types of um like experiments basically, um on patients that had agreed to do so. Um, they found that quite a few different centers go offline in your brain and then some get emphasized and like, basically they, they, they studied the brain while like stimulating people's trauma reactions. So for one, something called the Broca center might be Broca. It's B R O C A center goes offline in some cases when revisiting trauma. This is the center that basically um, helps put thoughts and feelings into words. And so when that goes offline, people have a really hard time explaining what they're feeling when they're revisiting their trauma. And it can actually like resemble a stroke. It's, it's, it's something that goes offline when people have strokes. So that's one thing that malfunctions. Uh, he talks about that on page 43. There's also Broadman's Area 19, which is the visual center, and that lit up when people were revisiting their trauma. Um, Even long after the trauma had occurred, trauma survivors visualized their trauma as if it was happening in the moment, which we're going to talk more about in the moment and like the fact that people... Uh, trauma survivors really don't have a great gauge for when something is happening um, in the moment and when it's not. And I'll explain that a little bit later. Also, you're going to hear some some book flippies because this mic picks up everything. So um, Broadman's Area, this is a um, quick little excerpt from the book, which I'm going to be doing this quite a bit throughout this episode, just reading excerpts. Okay. Um, Broadman's area 19 lit up in our participants. This is a region in the visual cortex that registers images when they first enter the brain. We were surprised to see brain activation in this area so long after the original experience of the trauma. Under ordinary conditions, raw images registered in area 19 are rapidly diffused to other brain areas that interpret the meaning of what has been seen. Once again, we were witnessing a brain region rekindled as if the trauma were actually occurring. The other thing that they, that's, sorry, page 44 is that, is that quote. I'm going to give you guys page numbers in case you do have the book and, you know, are following along or just would like to read more. Um, so that's a quote from him. Another thing that happened was only the right side of the, the brain lit up. Um, this is the side of the brain that stores memories, sounds, and emotions. And then the left brain stores facts and statistics. So... Um, this is what Vander Kolk says about that. This is on page 45. Deactivation of the left hemisphere has a direct impact on the capacity to organize experience into logical sequences and to translate our shifting feelings and perceptions into words. Broca's area, or Broca's area, I don't know how to pronounce it, which blacks out during the flashbacks is on the left side. Without sequencing, we can't identify cause and effect, grasp the long-term effects of our actions, or create coherent plans for the future. People who are very upset sometimes say they are losing their minds. In technical terms, they are experiencing the loss of executive functioning. 
When something reminds traumatized people of the past, their right brain reacts as if the traumatic event were happening in the present. But because their left brain is not working very well, they may not be aware that they are re-experiencing and reenacting the past. They are just furious, terrified, enraged, ashamed, or frozen. After the emotional storm passes, they may look for something or somebody to blame for it. They behave the way they did because you were 10 minutes late, or because you burned the potatoes, or because you never listened to me. Of course, most of us have done this from time to time, but when we cool down, we can hopefully admit our mistakes. Trauma interferes with this kind of awareness, and over time, our research demonstrated why. So that's page 45 once again. So, essentially, there is multiple aspects of the brain that malfunction when you are revisiting trauma. And if you've ever had a traumatic episode, you would know that sometimes you say things, you do things that sometimes after the fact, you're like, holy shit, where did that come from? And basically, it's coming from the fact that your brain is not working the way it's supposed to be working. You don't have the tools that you need to have in order to emotionally regulate and act in a way that is appropriate and healthy because your brain is not working healthily. It's it's malfunctioning. Um, yeah, so... I'm going to move on from that. I'm going to go fast here, so I apologize if I'm if I'm blazing through this, but you guys, we are 21 minutes in, and <laughs> I'm still on page one, and I have five pages of notes, so I'm trying to not have this be like a three-hour podcast episode. Okay, the other thing that happens is you can get stuck in fight or flight, and um, you also have some issues with your stress hormones. Um I'm going to just read, once again, I'm going to read an excerpt, which there's going to be a lot of excerpts, so sorry, but he says it way better than I could ever say it. So, okay, so here is the passage. This is on um, page 46. Uh, Adrenaline is one of the hormones that are critical to help us fight back or flee in the face of danger. Increased adrenaline was responsible for our participants' dramatic rise in heart rate and blood pressure while listening to their trauma narrative. end quote really quick for context they did a experiment where the participants um basically someone read a word for word uh narrative of their trauma to them and they analyzed what happened when that when it was read to them so okay begin quote under normal conditions people react to a threat with a temporary increase in their stress hormones as soon as the threat is over the hormones dissipate and the body returns to normal The stress hormones of traumatized people, in contrast, take much longer to return to baseline and spike quickly and disproportionately in response to mildly stressful stimuli. The insidious effects of constantly elevated stress hormones include memory and attention problems, irritability, and sleep disorders. They also also contribute to many long-term health issues depending on which body system is most vulnerable in a particular individual. We now know that there is another possible response to threat which our scans aren't capable of measuring. Some people simply go into denial. Their body, re- their bodies register the threat, but their conscious minds go on as if nothing has happened. However, even though the mind may learn to ignore the messages from the emotional brain, the alarm signals don't stop. The emotional brain keeps working and stress hormones keep sending signals to the muscle to tense for action or immobilize and collapse. The physical effects on the organs go 
unabated until they demand notice when they are expressed as illness. Medications, drugs, and alcohol can also temporarily dull or obliterate unbearable sensations and feelings, but the body continues to keep score. So, quick little rundown of that. Basically, your body isn't regulating correctly when you are trying to recover from a trauma. Um, you can get stuck in these states where you are hyper aware and hyper vigilant, and you are feeling all of the effects of stress and stress hormones, which your stress hormones are not a bad thing. They are there. Um, they're there for a reason. Um, also, sorry, that quote was from page 46. I'm a little all over the place. Um, but yeah, they're there for a reason there. It's not, it's not a bad thing to have stress hormones. That's the way that your body works and that's intentional. Um, and it's very important for your stress hormones to activate and kind of give your body a little bit of a red flag of, Hey, this is an unsafe situation. But when your body loses the ability to regulate that and you get those really drastic stress hormones over something very minimal objectively, um, then you're just having these really drastic and exhaust exhausting reactions to kind of minor issues. And that can kind of create this assumption by the public and by the people around you that maybe you've just gone crazy when in reality your, your body is just malfunctioning because it is, it's trying to protect you. There was a really drastic unsafe situation and your body got stuck in this, this unsafe mindset of we're not safe. And we're never safe. And so we have to do whatever we can to protect this person that we love, which is you. And yes, I'm giving emotions to your stress hormones, but uh, just deal with it. Okay. The other thing that kind of doesn't work very well, basically there's a lot of shit that doesn't work well when you're traumatized, which go figure. Um, but another thing that doesn't work well is the amygdala. So I'm going to read um, how he explains that. This is on page 61. Oh, I'm out of breath. Okay. The emotional brain has first dibs on interpreting incoming information. Sensory information about the environment and body state received by the eyes, ears, touch, kinesthetic sense, etc. converges on the thalamus, where it is processed and then passed on to the amygdala to interpret its emotional significance. This occurs with lightning speed. If a threat is detected, the amygdala sends messages to the hypothalamus to secrete stress hormones to defend against the stress. The neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, I don't know if I pronounced that right, calls this the low road. The second neural pathway, the high road, runs from the thalamus via the hippocampus and anterior cingulate to the prefrontal cortex, the rational brain, for a conscious and much more refined interpretation. This takes several microseconds longer. Um... Here is the important part. That was me saying that, not the quote. <laughs> it's kind of hard to read quotes when you're just on audio. Um, okay, so begin quote. Uh, if the interpretation of the threat by the amygdala is too intense and or the filtering system from the higher areas of the brain are too weak, as often happens in PTSD, people lose control over automatic emergency responses like prolonged startle or aggressive outbursts, end quote. Once again, that's page 61. So essentially, once again, the ability to regulate and find balance of what is actually a threat and what is just prolonged um, damage by your trauma 
is really hard to discern, partially because so much of this is subconscious, right? You're not sitting there turning your thalamus or your hypothalamus or your hippocampus on and off, right? It's just doing it. And so if it's malfunctioning and you don't know it's malfunctioning, how the fuck are you supposed to fix it? So there's just this automatic response where all of a sudden after a trauma, things that maybe didn't used to be interpreted as a threat are now a threat. Um, He also says that, this is also page 61, um, basically uh, it, a.k.a. the, I think the hypothalamus is what he's referring to here when he says it. Let's see. Oh, I'm sorry, the amygdala. So, begin quote, page 61. The amygdala decides whether incoming information is a threat to our survival even before we are consciously aware of the danger. By the time we realize what is happening, our body may already be on the move. The amygdala's danger signals trigger the release of powerful stress hormones, including cortisol and cortisol, sorry, and adrenaline, which increase heart rate, blood pressure, and the rate of breathing, preparing us to fight back or run away, end quote. So like I said, so much of this is subconscious. And so we can be in a fight with a partner and something that they say, something that they do is triggering and sends our body the signal that we are in a situation similar to our trauma and we are now unsafe. Even though in reality, it may not have been an unsafe thing that was said. And our body, without us even really being aware, can just start reacting. The the amygdala can just say, oh, (laughs) all right, we're preparing to fight back or run away. And just start sending these stress hormones, which kind of create these uncomfortable physiological reactions, right? Like blood rate increasing, your breathing increasing, your heart racing, like all these different things where you're, okay, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. And in reality, objectively, it might've not been a threat, but because your body is acting in a state of trauma or post-traumatic stress, your body's interpreting it as, as danger, even though it might not be. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the brain malfunctions, right? So there are some other symptoms. Um, one of those being your energy. If you have ever actively processed a trauma, gone through healing, gone through therapy, gone through intense self-work, gone through EMDR, it is exhausting as shit. I started EMDR last Thursday and oh my God, I am exhausted. Um, So on page two, um, Vander Kolk says, it takes tremendous energy to keep functioning while carrying the memory of terror and the shame of utter weakness and vulnerability, end quote. Your brain is working so hard and is working overtime to try to protect you from trauma. As we just discussed on all these different things that your brain is doing, your brain is interpreting things as danger constantly that normally wouldn't be interpreted as danger. So your brain is doing like double, triple the work. And that literally burns calories. 
Like that is burning calories. You are literally, it's, it's brain exercise essentially. So it's super common to like sleep a lot and always feel burnt out and always feel exhausted because your brain is just working like crazy. Um, not to mention that you're spending your energy on surviving, not on just being able to live your life. So on page 53, he says, the survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their life. These attempts to regain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and other autoimmune diseases. This explains why it's critical for trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. That's on page 53. Essentially, it's exhausting. And it also takes away so much of like the joy of life because you're just constantly working on trying to survive and fight off these threats, even if there aren't any legitimate threats like facing you. But your but your brain thinks that there are because it went through such a dramatic and drastic trauma that was so dangerous and so threatening to your system that now everything feels threatening. Um, in addition, it can create a really intense sensory overload. Um, essentially, your thalamus is not working correctly. It's not filtering or like assisting you and focusing on things coming through. So therefore you're constantly overwhelmed sensory wise. Um, on page 71, Vanderkolk says people with PTSD have their floodgates wide open, lacking a filter. They are on constant sensory overload in order to cope. They try to shut themselves down and develop tunnel vision and hyper-focus. The tragedy is that the price of closing down includes filtering out sources of pleasure and joy as well, end quote. And once again, that's on page 71. Um, Like I just mentioned, you can't just shut down part of your brain, right? Like when you're shutting down and you're dissociating, you're you're shutting down so much of it and, and you're not able to focus on parts of life that are enjoyable. Um, during my, the bulk of my trauma recovery, which trust me, I'm still very much so in my trauma recovery, but the, the part that in my opinion was probably the worst, um, I didn't, I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know what my favorite food was. I didn't know what hobbies I liked. Um, I had no, I just didn't understand how to exist and enjoy life because every ounce of my brain was so consumed with my trauma. And when I was healing and actively working on healing, my, my brain was consumed with that. And when I wasn't, my brain was consumed with just surviving and like trying to figure out a way to not feel this pain all the time and shut it down enough to actually be able to just function. Um, so yeah, if you have ever felt invalidated and you felt tired or overwhelmed or your sensory, like your senses have felt overwhelmed. You felt a sensory overload. You have felt, um, memory issues, chronic fatigue, uh, overall burnout, um, felt unable to talk about your trauma. Uh, you felt you've been able to like see your trauma when you have flashbacks, you felt like you're always in fight or flight. Um, 
your energy is is low. Essentially, here is the the reason why I wanted to include all that science. Here is science to affirm you <laughs> and to validate that those are uh, scientifically logical reactions to your trauma. So we've already mentioned it a little bit in this, but we're going to talk about the next kind of bullet point, which is that trauma feels ongoing. So essentially when you are remembering your trauma, you're reliving it. Um, it doesn't have a beginning, a middle or an end. Um, so you're often, your body is always on high alert um, on page 17, uh, Vander Kolk says, for most of us, a man coming down the street is just someone taking a walk. For a rape victim, however, they may see a person who is about to molest them and go into a panic. Um, he says on page 53, being traumatized means continuing to live your life as if the trauma were still going on, unchanged and immutable, as every new encounter or event is contaminated by the past. End quote. So essentially, your brain hasn't recognized that you're out of the trauma, which is why you're always on such high alert. It's why your energy is being drained. It's why you're so exhausted because your brain is in constant uh, fight or flight ready to protect you from this threat. And so the thing that's also really scary about that from a mental perspective is you don't feel safe, right? Because you feel like you're always at risk for this trauma. Um, which is terrifying and also really exhausting and also really hard to explain to people or to give reason or rationality to why you're just basically so terrified all the time when everyone else who maybe isn't experiencing the trauma that you're experiencing and doesn't have those physiological reactions and those changes in their brain, they can say, oh, well, this is safe. It's a safe environment. Why are you freaking out? And, and your brain is interpreting it as dangerous. So on page 69, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from a study. But basically, um, a quick recap. Vanderkolk did a study on two individuals who were in a really traumatic car crash, like really traumatic car crash. And um, the guy's name is Stan. So there's some quick context. So on page 69... Vanderkolk writes, Stan's amygdala made no distinction between past and present. It activated just as if the car crash were happening in the scanner, triggering powerful stress hormones and nervous system responses. These were responsible for his sweating and trembling, his racing heart and elevated blood pressure. Entirely normal and potentially life-saving responses if a truck had just smashed into your car. I love that line. That's end quote. Sorry. I love that line. Um, because your body is doing what it thinks it needs to do. And I think that we're going to talk about befriending your body a little bit later. But I think one of the things that drastically changed the way that I viewed my trauma and my body, for a very long time I was at odds with my body and I was really angry at my body for constantly causing all this stress and this chaos and me. I, I never felt safe in my own body. And that was really infuriating. And I think the thing that drastically changed the way that I viewed that was once I realized that my body was literally just trying to protect me. My body thought that I was in danger because trauma made it think that. So in Stan's case, all of those physiological responses, his blood pressure, his uh, racing heart, those are all really uh, 
amazing physiological responses if you're in a car crash because they're getting your body to try to get you to to do something to protect yourself, whether that be to get out or to make a quick decision, whatever. But when you're not in a car crash and you're just existing and you're getting all these signals that are misleading you and making you think that you're unsafe, it can be really frustrating and it can be very um, debilitating and also kind of put a rift between the relationship between you and your body because you're like, what the fuck body? (laughs) Get it together. And it can be really, really frustrating. And it was a huge deal for me to finally thank my body and give it credit for really trying to protect me in a situation where with all the information my body had, it was doing the right thing. It was protecting me from a threat. Um, and I have to give it credit for that. Uh, we're going to move on to the next one. Sorry. I know this is kind of a weird flow, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of shit to get through here. Um, and it's all so beneficial. So I want to make sure I get to all of it. Um, we also relive our trauma, right? So a lot of these different studies, um, they, they existed because of, uh, stimulating flashbacks basically. Um, so on page 66, uh, Vanderkolk talks about flashbacks and their wild intensity. Um, he says, flashbacks in reliving are in some way worse than the trauma itself. A traumatic event has a beginning and an end. At some point, it's over. But for people with PTSD, a flashback can occur at any time, whether they are awake or asleep. There is no way of knowing when it's going to occur again or how long it will last. People suffer. People who suffer from flashbacks often organize their lives around trying to protect against them. They may compulsively go to the gym to pump iron, but finding that they are never strong enough, numbing themselves with drugs, or try to cultivate an illusory, illusory, illusory sense of control in highly dangerous situations like motorcycle racing, bungee jumping, or working as an ambulance driver. Constantly fighting unseen dangers is exhausting and leaves them fatigued, depressed, and weary. If elements of the trauma are replayed again and again, the accompanying accompanying, sorry, stress hormones engrave those memories even more deeply in the mind. Ordinary day-to-day events become less and less compelling. Not being able to take to deeply take in what's going on around them makes it impossible to feel fully alive. It becomes harder to feel the joys and aggravations of ordinary life, harder to concentrate on the tasks at hand. Not being fully alive in the present keeps them more firmly imprisoned in the past. That is once again on page 67, end quote. Well, 66 to 67. Um, Once again, the theme is this shit is exhausting. Um, And it's also, gosh, I just like, I can't help but just like really try to give grace to trauma survivors because your body is just like, it's doing what it can. It's really trying to protect you. And your body isn't able to decipher whether or not a flashback is actually the trauma or not. And so it's really just trying to do what it can to keep you out of danger. But the hard thing about that is you constantly feel like you're in danger and there is no safe place compared to say your car crashes, your trauma. Logically, if you just don't get in a car, you're not going to get in a car crash. So you could just avoid cars. But then with flashbacks, 
those can pop up anytime, whether you're in a car, whether you're in your bed, whether you're in a coffee shop, like no matter where you are, those can pop up. And so it creates this environment where you literally have no safe haven and that's shitty. <laughs> like how, how do you go about that? Right. And I think any trauma survivor could tell you that they want to feel safe. Right. And it's because our trauma has robbed our body of the feeling of having this like safe haven. Um, which is it's hard. <laughs> um, Kolk also talks about remembering your trauma. So some people remember all of the time and they have this kind of constant state of living in their trauma, right? Some people don't really remember at all. They block it out. Um, when they can access those memories, it's terrifying. Um, for me, like when I remembered my second assault, I, I hadn't actually both of my assaults, I, I had stored away for a long time, hadn't remembered them. And then when I did remember them, it, it was, there was such a buildup of emotions because your body still has those emotions, right? They're just hidden. And there was such a buildup that it was, it was like a slap to the face. Um, on page 13, Vanderkolk writes, it takes enormous trust and courage to allow yourself to remember, end quote. And that is hands down my favorite quote from this portion of the book. Um, and it does. And as I'm currently going through EMDR and part of the reason why I put it off for so long was because it was so terrifying to imagine remembering. I didn't really want to remember like that's, it was really scary to think of learning more about my trauma when I, I know how shitty my drama is. Like I didn't want more of it. And it really does take enormous trust and courage to allow yourself to remember. Like it, it, it's, it's scary. So if you are in a state where you don't really want to dive into the healing process because you don't want to have to be exposed to it, I get it. And please give yourself grace in that because it really is really scary and it can be really exhausting. And there's no shame in, in being scared of that. There, there really isn't because it, it is, a, it is a valid fear. Um, I would also encourage you that life after being able to unpack some of your trauma and recognize it and say it out loud and hold space for it and then start to work on healing and treatment, um, and start to find yourself again and figure out your favorite color and figure out how to communicate in a way that is effective and, find people who feel safe because you're able to share their, your trauma with them and they respond in a way that makes you feel seen. It, it's, it's very rewarding. Um, some people also tell portions of their story. So I, I think honestly, everyone who has experienced the trauma has probably done this in some way or another, but people can basically create cover stories for their trauma where for me, um, it can basically, it can be a watered down version of your trauma or even an excuse for the behavior of a loved one, maybe out of like shame for the reality of the situation or even as a protection mechanism. Um, an example, like my cover story that I tell people has levels. So like it gets more honest if I trust you, but there are multiple versions. So if I'm just meeting you, you get a really watered down version of my story. And the, the more that I trust you, the more authentic and honest the, the, the version gets. 
And honestly, I think the most authentic version is only in my head. I don't think that I've gotten to a point, maybe my therapist has heard it, but like, I really got to trust you for you to hear the very honest version. My cover story for my abusive relationship was not honest at all. Um, I just made excuses for how much I loved him and how we were both traumatized and went through a trauma together and he was just trying to do his best. And I think that there's validity in the nuance of people being humans and that people have their own trauma that they bring into things and they make mistakes, uh, X, Y, Z. But, you know, I think that whenever you make excuses for people who have abused you and harmed you, it also lessens the amount of space that you can hold for your own pain. And it becomes really hard to affirm that pain because you're constantly just feeling like you need to protect that other person. And the more that you affirm your pain, the worse it looks the other, the worse it makes the other person look. So God forbid the person that you love look bad, even though they hurt you. Um, so when talking about cover stories, uh, Vander Kolk says, this doesn't mean that people can't talk about a tragedy that has befallen them. Sooner or later, most survivors come up with what many of them call their cover story that offers some explanation for their symptoms and behavior for public consumption. These stories, however, rarely capture the inner truth of the experience. It is enormously difficult to organize one's traumatic experiences into a coherent account, a narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. Even a seasoned reporter like the famed CBS correspondent Ed Moreau struggled to convey the atrocities he saw when the Nazi concentration camp Buchenwald, I might have said that wrong, was liberated in 1945. Um, and then this is a quote from Ed Murrow. I pray that you believe what I have said. I reported what I saw and heard, but for only part of it. For most of it, I have no words. End quote. And that's on page 43. Um... Oof, the quote from Ed Murrow kind of kills me because obviously <laughs> I'm not trying to compare my trauma to fucking Holocaust, but the just I pray you believe what I've said. I reported what I saw and heard, but for only part of it, for most of it, I have no words. I feel like perfectly sums up my investigation. And I wish that could have, ooh, sorry, we dropped something. I wish that could have been my closing statement to the reporters and to the investigators for my investigation. I wish I could have said that as my closing statement of like, I reported what I saw and heard, but for a lot of it, I don't have words and I don't have a way to coherently explain this to you because that trauma lives in my head. I, I really, really, really wish that that was something I could have said. I wish I knew that quote back then. Um, <laughs> we're like two years out from the investigation. So it's a little too late now, but, um, but yeah, so essentially because your trauma just is, it's, traumas are very complicated, right? And as we've already learned, a lot of your brain goes offline when you experience trauma or when you relive it. So expecting yourself to be able to explain your trauma in a way that is coherent and makes sense and makes it digestible for other people is, I think, a lot to ask of yourself. Um, okay. Shame. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> Fun topic. Um, so people experience lots of versions of shame when it comes to trauma. Um, they can experience shame of what happened to them, shame of how they responded to the trauma. Maybe they lashed out or did something horrible. 
maybe they um, acted in a kind of embarrassing way and they didn't emotionally regulate. Um, on page two, Vander Kolk says, one of the hardest things for traumatized people is to confront their shame about the way they behaved during a traumatic episode, end quote. Um, that is a hard one for me because I've had many traumatic episodes in which I yell and scream and lash out at the people around me and I'm an asshole or I'm so over the top and like it feels so uh, crazy. And when I come down from that, and this was not as much anymore, but a lot in the year after the investigation, when I would come down from that, it was so embarrassing. And I think because mental health and trauma is not validated as much as it should be in society, it didn't feel like a, I didn't feel like like a, I don't know, a, a reasonable or logical excuse for me to have acted that way. And a lot of times I didn't have words or explanation for why I acted that way. So I kind of was just like, sorry, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck happened. Like I'm an asshole, I guess. And I didn't know how to like explain that to someone. And I just kind of had to sit there in in like a shame corner in my brain of just being like, why did I do that? And it created a really unhealthy dynamic with my relationship to my brain and my body. Like I said, I developed a lot of hatred for my brain because it was like, why did you just make me act like that? I just looked like a fool. Like, why did you just do that to me? And I think it, it feels like a betrayal. Um, I think people really underestimate that there is like a, a real relationship between you and your body and your brain. And it can feel very disconnected at times when in your heart, you know, that's not how you wanted to act, but in your brain took over and you started doing things that you realize are wrong or inappropriate or, um, immature or unregulated. And it's embarrassing and it's shame and it feels, it feels shitty and you feel shamed and it's, it's not a fun feeling. Um, another thing is a lot of times people meet that emotional dysregulation with anger and with, they match it with negative emotions. Um, I struggled with emotional dysregulation for a very long time. I still struggle with it, but as a kid, I had no tools to deal with it. Um, because I am bipolar and, um, that shit can be really hard when you are, um, undiagnosed and have no tools as how to handle mood swings. Um, so when I would act the way that I was, I couldn't explain why I was acting the way that I was because I was a kid. I just knew that I lashed out and then felt terrible. And my parents' reaction was to punish me or meet me with more negative emotions, um, which this is not shit on my parents. My parents also did not know I had bipolar disorder. So we were all kind of uh, undereducated about it at the time. But um, Vander Kolk says, one thing is certain, yelling at someone who is already out of control can only lead to further dysregulation. Just as your dog cowers if you shout and wags his tail when you speak in a high sing-song, we humans respond to harsh voices with fear, anger, or shutdown into playful tones by opening up and relaxing. We simply cannot help but respond to these indicators of safety and danger, end quote. And that's page 87 to 88. So this is a hard ask. But if you have someone in your life who you know is experiencing emotional dysregulation, who is healing from a trauma, 
a lot of the times the way that they're acting is not intentional. And a lot of times it's subconscious and it's just a reaction. And that kind of myth of thinking, oh, you have self-control, like just control yourself doesn't always exist in traumatic reactions. So try to give people grace. I think there's a really thin, thin line for that where you don't want to have yourself in a situation where you're being abused or being treated poorly. And, um, I will say firsthand that when I was healing from my trauma, I was very abusive to my partner and he was abusive to me, but I also had to own that the way that my trauma was manifesting in my brain, it resulted in some really abusive behavior on my part. And I can't expect someone to stick around for that. That's it's not fair to them. And that's not my fault. Um, there's definitely parts of my abuse that were my fault. I'm not trying to, you know, just entirely take my own agency out of the actions that I that I um made. But on the side of things that was related to my trauma, my trauma wasn't my fault. Um and the subconscious actions that resulted were a reaction of my body trying to protect me. But I can't expect somebody to just put up with that and be abused just because I was abused. You know what I mean? Like that, that's not a realistic ask. And I also had to like own that and it own that I was abusive and own that my behavior was abusive and toxic. And, you know, that relationship ended and I decided to go try to get some help and figure out how to make these emotions, how to make it work, how to heal from this so that I wasn't constantly lashing out at people that I loved. Um, I'm also going to give a disclaimer that in the relationship that I was in, it was not a safe relationship for me emotionally. So I think that my fight or flight was extra triggered and on high alert because I was in an unsafe situation. And I think that that triggered my trauma reactions. Um, and then Perfect little segue here. We can move into relationships. Um, so on page 13, Vanderkolk says, trauma, whether it is the result of something done to you or something you yourself have done, almost always makes it difficult to engage in intimate relationships. After you've experienced something so unspeakable, how do you learn to trust yourself or anyone else ever again? Or conversely, how how can you surrender to an intimate relationship after you've been brutally violated? End quote. Once again, that's on page 13. So for me... On a surface level, I had a really intense fear of being naked or having sex after my assault. Um, I had been violated in a sexual way, and the idea of opening myself up to the threat of that again, willingly, was terrifying. Like, I was with a partner for a while and, like, couldn't be naked around them because I was just so terrified. Um, On a deeper emotional level... I had a deep fear of showing my trauma and its symptoms to someone. Um, I would constantly break up with partners and like try to spare them from my trauma and like my baggage and would try to break up with them before I hurt them um, instead of trying to deal with why I was hurting them. I just, I didn't want to hurt people, but I didn't know how not to. Um, it also becomes wildly difficult to like share the intimacy of your trauma with someone who doesn't relate or understand on a deep level. I think that a lot of people in the trauma community, um, find groups of people who relate to their trauma because it's like, you understand, you get it. You're not going to judge. Um, on page 19, 
Vanderkolk says, after trauma, the world becomes sharply divided between those who know and those who don't. People who have not shared the same experience cannot be trusted because they can't understand it. Sadly, this often includes spouses, children, and coworkers, end quote. And that's on page 19. Um, for me, it put a really big rift between some friends of mine and like, and me, because it was, I tried to explain things and their responses just didn't, didn't match up to what I needed. Because honestly, until you experience a trauma firsthand, you're really not going to have a realistic understanding of it. Um, unless you're fucking Bessel van der Kolk, <laughs> then you'll have a great understanding of it. Um, and so it was hard for me to feel safe with those people. Um, I also am notoriously known for mentioning my assault really early on in relationships or like dating dynamics because I have to see how those people respond. I like, I can't move forward in a relationship unless I know that they're a safe person when it comes to assault. And I, I've got, I have it like fine tuned as to what I feel like is an appropriate response. And if your response is not appropriate or not validating for me, that the relationship ends there. It could be the fucking second date. And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're not, we're not moving forward here because my world is divided between people who know and people who don't, and then people who respond and can empathize and people who won't. Um, and the reality of it is so much of trauma is a lack of safety. And as humans, we want to feel safe and trauma takes away that safety. And you want to find people who help reinstate that safety a little bit. Um, Bessel van der Kolk writes about safety in a way that is absolutely beautiful Um, he says, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Safe connections are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. Numerous studies of disaster response around the globe have shown that social support is the most powerful protection against becoming overwhelmed by stress and trauma. Social support is not the same as merely being in the presence of others. The critical issue is reciprocity being truly heard and seen by the people around us, feeling that we are held in someone else's mind and heart. For our physiology to calm down, heal, and grow, we need a visceral feeling of safety. No doctor can write a prescription for friendship and love. These are complex and hard-earned capacities. You don't need a history of trauma to feel self-conscious and even panicked at a party with strangers, but trauma can turn the whole world into a gathering of aliens. Many traumatized people find people find themselves chronically out of sync with the people around them. Some find comfort in groups where they can replay their combat experiences, rape or torture with others who have similar backgrounds or experiences. Focusing on a shared history of trauma and victimization alleviates their searing sense of isolation, but usually at the price of having to deny their individual differences. Members can only belong if they conform to the common code. Isolating oneself into a narrowly defined victim group promotes a view of others as irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst, which eventually only leads to further alienation. Gangs, extremist political parties, and religious cults may provide solace, but they rarely foster the mental flexibility needed to be able to open, or I'm sorry, fully open to what life has to offer. 
and as such cannot liberate their members from their traumas. While functioning people are able to accept individual differences and acknowledge the humanity of others. That was well-functioning. Sorry, I said that weird. In the past two decades, it has become widely recognized when adults or children are too skittish or shut down to derive comfort from human beings' relationships. Oh, sorry. I'm reading so much. Uh, To derive comfort from human beings, relationships with other mammals can help. Dogs and horses, and even dolphins, offer less complicated companionship while providing the necessary sense of safety. Dogs and horses in particular, in particular are now extensively used to treat some groups of trauma patients, end quote. And that is a quote from page 81 to 82. Um, first of all, gotta love dogs. Um, I loved, I love, 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 loved the line of dogs and horses can offer less complicated companionship while providing the necessary sense of safety. Because dogs just fucking love you. And that made so much sense to me when I read that as to why Stevie is like such a safe place for me. Because I don't have to worry about betrayal. I don't have to worry about danger with her. Like it is just an unconditional sense of love and safety. And she's so attuned to my body language. And when I am in distress... But there's not this, like, you're going to leave me and this, like, fear. And there's also not a fear of you don't understand because she doesn't need to understand. She's just there and loves me anyways. Um, but with people, that was a lot fucking harder. And I also think the the point of the danger of only seeking out groups that relate to you is, is super harmful. And it was I think it's a really important point because any type of group where you all have to think alike and have the same experiences, it's going to turn into some sort of cult eventually. And I say that with a disclaimer, there is also great benefit in finding people with shared experiences so that you don't feel alone or isolated in your experiences, like support groups or like even like Facebook groups or online communities. Um, But I've also seen some serious like gatekeeping in those communities with like, sexual assault communities where the majority of people feel a certain way and if someone feels a different way they get fucking kicked out or they get berated online for not feeling the same way that other people feel and that can get really dangerous and so i think when you're looking for a relationship where people can understand there's so much um importance and like benefit from that especially when you're first going through a trauma and you feel like you're the only one who's been through it, it can be so helpful to hear someone else say, no, I've been through it too. And you're not crazy. And that's a huge reason why I do this podcast, but simultaneously you want to make sure that you're not creating your entire identity around this trauma and the idea that you have to fit into this box now of what that trauma should look like. Um, Let's see. Okay, the next point is the impact on self. Um, Your trauma can often become your entire sense of self, like I just mentioned. Um, On page 18, Vanderkolk says, somehow the very event that causes them so much pain had also become their sole source of meaning. They felt fully alive only when they were revisiting their traumatic past, and that's on page 18. Um, I felt this a lot on the the first three years of recovery for me, and I'm still kind of coming out of it, but... My trauma was the only thing that I talked about. It was the only thing that I brought up in conversations. It was the only thing that 
um, I reflected on. It was the only books that I bought. It was the only thing that I posted about on social media. Um, I actually look back on my social media posts and like paragraphs of how I talked about healing. And it's kind of cringy to me because it was like my, I just made the trauma my sense of self. And this was the same period in which I switched my major to psychology. I decided I was going to be a trauma therapist. And I now know there's no way in fucking hell I'm going to be a trauma therapist. And I say that, but watch, I'll be a trauma therapist in fucking 30 years. Um, Because it's trauma and my trauma is still really intense for me. And the idea of having that be my entire job, I, I don't want it to be that much of my identity. And I think I've gotten to a point now where I actually would like to move away from that being a part of my identity. Um, the podcast is kind of my one outlet where I feel like I can share things that I've learned in a way that might help others, but I don't want that to be the entirety of my life. Um, although I do see and understand why people do that because I'm kind of, for me, at least when I was able to focus on my trauma exclusively and have it be my entire identity, I was feeling emotions, um, but I was feeling like bitterness and anger in like all the time, but I was feeling something. And so that was worth it to me. But I've gotten to a point now where I would like to feel other emotions. <laughs> I would like to feel joy and peace um, and contentment. Contentment? That's not a word. Um, is it? I don't know if that's a word. Um, I would like to feel content. I got to Google that now. We're going to take a sidebar. Ready, everyone? Let's see if contentment is a word. Contentment. Oh my God, it is a word. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was worried I was going to look stupid. I just look stupid now because I had to Google it. No worries. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would like to feel other emotions other than my just my trauma. Um, okay, we got two left. We got two different points left. Um, next one is trauma reactions. So the body intakes trauma, right? And it results in someone um, being constantly alert uh, terrified of their trauma, terrified of when they may be pulled back in like via triggers or flashbacks, or they can go numb and split off from themselves. Um, I've always thought of this as dissociation, but Vanderkolk actually calls it depersonalization, which I found interesting. Um, this is a survival tactic, right? Like you're either constantly alert because you're trying to survive and protect from danger or you're numb and you split off from who you are because you're trying to not feel those emotions and like shut down, right? Which we talked about earlier. So I'm going to call back to an earlier quote, um, page 71. Um, Trauma patients try to shut down themselves and develop tunnel vision and hyper-focus. The tragedy is that, or the tragedy is that the price of closing down includes filtering out sources of pleasure and joy as well. Um, we've already read that quote, but I feel like that's um, beneficial here as well. Um, for me, this was the entire, like, first 18 years of my life um, where I had so much trauma that I didn't have the tools to process. And I kind of split. There were times when I was very alert, but then there were also a lot of times, most of the time, where, like I said, I had this cave where I shut down. Um, but, yeah. Okay. This is our last little chunk here. I can't believe I didn't think I was going to be able to hit an hour with all of this. I was like worried about time. Um, we've had an hour. We're, we're chill. Okay. So this is treatments. Um, like I mentioned, 
Vanderkolk has, I think part, let me check. I think it's part five is about treatments. So this is a gen, like this is a, just a little bit of information about treatments. Um, hang on. Yeah, so um, part five of this book is Paths to Recovery. So we will get deeper into treatments and how to heal. Um, but he actually kind of talks about actually kind of like shitty treatments <laughs> in uh, the first part of the book here. So the first treatment that he feels is not a great one is like a desensitization treatment. Um so I'm going to read an excerpt on that from page 73. Um, he says, many treatment approaches for traumatic stress focus on desensitizing patients to their past, with the exception that re-exposure to their traumas will reduce emotional outbursts and flashbacks. I believe that this is based on a misunderstanding of what happens in traumatic stress. We must... I think that's a typo. He said, we must most of all help. Oh, mo not a typo. I'm just, I can't read. We must most of all help our patients to live fully and securely in the present. In order to do that, we need to help bring those brain structures that deserted them while they were overwhelmed by trauma back. Desensitization may make you less reactive, but if you cannot feel satisfaction in ordinary everyday things like taking a walk, cooking a meal, or playing with your kids, life will pass you by end quote. And that is on page 73. Um, essentially there's a lot of treatments for trauma that just try to like shut you down and not actually get to the root source of the problem. And we're trying to avoid shutting down, right? We want to feel again. Um, it's, this is just basically a treatment style that's similar to numbing, which is, you know, already a, a way that people react to trauma. Um, he also talks about medication, which I have some hot takes on medication. And boy, oh boy, do I love his take on medication. Um, I heard from a therapist at one point that your medication should never be more than 50% medication and 50% coping and actual strategies to heal. Obviously, there are some situations where that rule needs to be broken, but I feel like it's a really good, I don't know, kind of... Okay, sorry, Stevie is doing her little clicky clackies. She's been woken up from her nap. Um, there's there's definitely situations in which that, that rule needs to be broken, right? But I think it's a good benchmark to live by when you're thinking about, um, whether you're thinking about like getting prescribed medication or whatever, I, I do think it's a really helpful benchmark. Um, but yeah, so sorry, I had to pause for just a moment and get Stevie to chill the fuck out because there's going to be some serious like clicky clacky noises in the background. Um, but anyways, I, I, I love his take on medication. So on page 36, Vanderkolk says the drug revolution that started out with so much promise may in the end have done as much harm as good. The theory that mental illness is caused primarily by chemical imbalances in the brain that can be corrected by specific drugs has become broadly accepted by the media and the public as well as by the medical profession. In many places, drugs have displaced therapy and enabled patients to suppress their problems without addressing the underlying issues. Antidepressants can make all the difference in the world in helping with day-to-day -day functioning, and if it comes to a choice between taking a sleeping pill and drinking yourself into a stupor every night to get a few hours of sleep, there is no question which is preferable. For people who are exhausted from trying to make it on their own through yoga class, workout routines, or simply toughing it out, 
medications can bring life-saving relief. The SSRIs can be very helpful in making traumatized people less enslaved by their emotions, but they should only be considered adjuncts in their overall treatment. So, oh wait, I'm going to, there's more to that quote. Hang on. Um, After conducting, conducting numerous studies of medications for PTSD, I've come to realize that psychiatric medications have a serious downside as they may reflect, sorry, they may deflect attention from dealing with the underlying issues. The brain disease model takes control over people's fate out of their own hands and puts doctors and insurance companies in charge of fixing their problems. Over the past three decades, psychiatric medications have become a mainstay in our culture with dubious consequences. Consider the case of antidepressants. If they were indeed as effective as we have been led to believe, depression should by now become a minor issue in our society. Instead, even as antidepressant use continues to increase, it has not made a dent in hospital admissions for depression. The number of people treated for depression has tripled over the past two decades, and one in 10 Americans now take antidepressants. End quote. Which, Bessel van der Kolk, snaps for you coming for big pharma in your book, because... This is my take on medication exactly. Although the the depression thing is, I had not thought of that. And that's such a good point. Um, I specifically love that he says they should only be considered adjuncts in their overall treatment. Um, because they they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be your main source of treatment. All that's doing is just like, it's numbing you, right? It's not actually treating the issues that are, that are causing your pain. So yeah, I think that the 50-50 medication model is definitely a good thing to, a good rule of thumb to go by, right? That you don't want to go over 50% medication and 50% coping. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's how I feel with medication. I take medication very rarely. I have an as-needed medication. Um, I don't like just feeling numbed. I, every time I've taken medication or been on daily meds, it's just felt like I'm numbing my issues. And it just feels like there is a blanket over my nerves and I don't really feel like I'm actually doing anything to help myself, which is frustrating. Um, but yeah. And then, um, the last method of treatment that he actually says is helpful is reconnecting with your body. So why do we need to reconnect? Um, I think as we've just like, you know, talked about for the last hour, um, trauma disconnects you from your body in a, a number of ways, but, Trauma patients can often experience dysregulation in in the form of a lack of self-awareness and bodily awareness, and uh, this is due to their brain shutting down the portion of their brain that registers those emotions and sensations. Um, There's more info on this from on pages uh, 92 to 94. I'm not going to read all of that, but um, what, what he does say is in an effort to shut off terrifying sensations they, aka trauma patients, have also deadened their capacity to feel fully alive. Um, end quote. That's page 92. Um, this can result in the inability to like process gut feelings or have an awareness of what is dangerous and what's beneficial. Because like we said, uh, you kind of always feel like you're in danger. So if your gut feeling says that you're in danger, sometimes you don't know whether or not to trust that because you don't really know whether or not it's legit danger or it's like your trauma manifesting as danger. Um, patients 
also still have the symptoms. Like they still feel the physical and like physiological emotional responses, the stress hormones. They just can't make the connection between the physical sensations and the emotions behind them. Um, And this can be treated by focusing on connecting those two with like body feelings worksheets or practicing what sensations one feels in their body when they feel certain emotional reactions. Um, I have our, I have a body feelings worksheet on my resources page, um, on my Instagram. It's my favorite therapy worksheet, um, ever. It is, it's made for children and I love it. Um, but yeah, he talked about this more on page 98 and 99. Um, and then in terms of like, how do we treat this? We need to befriend our bodies, which first of all, I just love that that's the way that he phrases it because so much of my journey has been being at odds with my body and treating it like it's the enemy. And I really do think that so much of the solution is becoming buddies with your body again and playing on the same team. So let's find the excerpt here that I'm going to read. On page 102 to 103, Um, He talks about how to befriend your body. So uh, he says, trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend the sensations in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. In order to change, people need to become aware of their sensations and the way their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. How can people open up to and explore their internal world of sensations and emotions? In my practice, I begin the process by helping my patients to first notice and then describe the feelings in their bodies. Not emotions, such as anger or anxiety or fear, but the physical sensations beneath the emotions. Pressure, heat, muscular tension, tingling, caving in, feeling hollow, and so on. I also work on identifying the sensations associated with relaxation or pleasure. I ask them to pay attention to subtle shifts in their bodies, such as tightness in their chests or gnawing in their bellies, when they talk about negative events that they claim did not bother them. End quote. And then again on page 103, he says, All too often, however, drugs such as Abilify, Zyprexa, and Seroquel are prescribed instead of teaching people the skills to deal with such distressing physical reactions. Of course, medications only blunt sensations and do nothing to resolve them or transform them from toxic agents into allies. End quote. Um... This is not just a shit on medication. What he's saying is that medication can do wonders to help you get to a baseline that is acceptable to live your everyday life. But then once you're at that baseline, try to then figure out what the root cause is and, and solve those root issues so that then maybe you don't need the medication. Maybe you can solve the root problems and treat them and then be able to transition off of that medication. Uh, But the goal is not to be on medication forever, right? Um, If you need it every day to function, there's like, and there's no shame in that. It's just the idea that there long-term, it's going to be more beneficial if you're able to figure out how to treat those root problems and therefore eliminate a lot of their symptoms because then you're not just blunting. Like he said, you're not just like blunting the symptoms, you're actually treating them. 
Um, but I, I, I love the way that he describes the treatment because it really is pretty simple when you think about it. It's, it's, it's going through and just addressing the things that you feel in your body. Um, progressive muscle relaxation scripts could help with this as well. Because if you're feeling really tense and you go through a progressive muscle relaxation script, um, you can realize what parts of your body were tensed in that fear that maybe you didn't even realize you were tensing um, as you go through like every part of your body. Um, and those are easy to find too. You can literally just Google them and they're normally free. Um, but yeah, that is the body keeps the score part one, ladies and gents and my non-binary friends. Um, sorry, there was so much fucking information, but like I said, this book is packed and I took so little out of the book in like context of how much was in there. Um, but I do feel like this is the information that, um, all of the information is so beneficial, but I feel like these were kind of the highlights. Um, I really hope that this helped someone or made sense to someone because even as someone who is kind of, I'm not on in any way on the tail end of my trauma recovery, but I feel like the hardest part where a lot of this was going on for me that, you know, all the symptoms that he described, I've already been able to work through a little bit. Um, and I just, I wish I had this information like when I was going through it. So my hope is that me helping break down some of this information will be helpful to you and you will be able to you know, have some more tools in your toolbox. And that's, that's the goal. Like the goal is just to get, have more tools in your toolbox. That is, that is the end goal. Um, so next week we will go through parts three and four of the book, which, um, let me double check on page numbers here. Um, that is pages 107 to 204. So we'll tackle like another hundred pages. Um, and then the last episode of the Body Keeps Score series will be part five, which is Paths to Recovery. So that these next two ones that we'll go through are The Minds of Children, which is Attachment and Attunement, Abuse and Neglect, all really cheery subjects, Developmental Trauma, and then The Imprints of Trauma, which is Uncovering Secrets and the Problem of Traumatic Memory the unbearable heaviness of remembering. I really like that chapter title. Um, and then part five is paths to recovery. So it's, it's a lot of different treatment, um, uh, suggestions and methods, which will be really fun to end on that and have some, it's always nice to have some hope and some calls to actions as to how you can treat this thing that you just heard was so wildly terrible. Um, but yeah, so, I know it was a lot of information. I'm exhausted. My throat is dry as shit because I just talked for an hour and a half. Um, but that is definitely all the time that we have for today. I got to eat dinner. Um, thank you so much for listening. I really do hope that this gave you a little bit of clarity or validation or affirmation or tools or something. Um, but if you enjoy the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath. I needed that a little bit because I am tense. And remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way.
And if you're tired and exhausted from constantly battling your trauma, you can live mindfully later. (laughs) Okay, I'll see you guys next week.